Hello and welcome to Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 28, Behind the Candelabra, from 2013. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And this is the first movie that we've recorded in a while that I had to really bring myself to watch again. Because I saw it when I was on HBO and I was like, ugh, I do not want to see this again. Like, it's not bad, I don't think. And I think Michael Douglas and Matt Damon are really good in their roles. But coming off this stretch where we had so many movies that I wound up really liking or loving here, it's just like, man, this is not, it doesn't feel like the kind of movie he would make. And it doesn't feel like the kind of movie that I want to see. Yeah, it's so funny. I'm I'm so glad you had that reaction because we can puzzle through it together. I first saw this movie on HBO with my wife and we watched the first oh, maybe we got about halfway through it and then we had to go put the you know like deal with kids or something. I don't know. We just and then we just never went back to it. Neither one of us ever Sounds were, about right. Yeah, we're moved to sort of go back. I could sort of see where it was headed and I saw these performances and I you know, oh, isn't that funny? There's like, like Liberace such a funny guy and that was it. So yeah, I wasn't really dragging my feet because I was curious to see the rest of it, but that was my first experience with it, was seeing it halfway and then never really being moved to go back. Yeah, I also remember watching it when it aired, which is the one and only time I've seen it. I basically sat down and was aware that this was going to be Soderbergh's last film, so <laughs> that was basically my main draw. I was aware of who Liberace was when I was a kid, but like, you know, it's not like I'm a fan or a follower or anything, so I wasn't going to be down for a Liberace biopic or anything like that. And, you know, it's interesting. It's different than what I was expecting, but yeah, it didn't really blow me out of the water, or especially right, like you were saying, Joey, you know, after the last few films, how just, like, really good those were. And I wasn't quite sure why he chose this, what he was doing with this material. And this time around, I just, you know, thought it was all right. You did give it the coveted little heart on Letterboxd, though, that you liked it. So you enjoyed at least part of it. Yeah, I mean, I like it. It's fine. You know, it's nothing special. It might drop half a star after we talk about it, (laughs) you know, as things are wont to do. That's the weirdest thing about this is that I don't know why he made this. There's one thing on IMDb that he had been mulling over doing this movie since he did Traffic with Michael Douglas, that they were talking on the set of that about doing this. And apparently it was supposed to go in 2008, and then Michael Douglas got throat cancer. So they had to push it off a couple of years. And then it finally came out in 2013. This was also supposed to be before Soderbergh got his hands on it. It was originally going to be a movie starring Robin Williams and Justin Timberlake. Wow. Which wow. is weird. I could have uh, seen back- JT in it in this version would have been good. What's weird is that we've spent so much time for all, pretty much all of Cinemakers, all of Soderbergh's career, talking about how he's, like, focused on this, like, accumulation of wealth or, like, people trying to get by and, like, the American dream and all this different stuff. And here, just opulence. And I wonder if that's why he did this, because it seems to me that the movie that would interest the kind of guy that we think we know is the movie after Scott and Liberace, after Scott and Lee break up, and then he's working at, like, the FedEx Kinko's or whatever. (laughs) Like, that right. feels like the kind of movie that I'm like, oh, this is the Soderbergh movie. But then, like, it's over. Like, I wish that – I don't know how you do it because it's a different movie, but I wish that, that came 45 minutes in or something or that they, like, played with the structures that we saw both of those simultaneously. Like, I don't know. It's just I don't care about Matt Damon beginning to look thinner and younger and prettier but also, like, horrifically fake. Like, that doesn't interest me. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things for me in the movie is Damon's opening bit where he's, like, this working class – showbiz adjacent dog 
handler for dog yeah, wrangler yeah. for movies. <laughs> like, I sort of want to see the movie about that guy and whatever he's going to get up to. And you know, maybe he's going to join the Lucky Logan crew or something. I don't know. It feels like he's like there's a, some interest in that. And I do think the performances are good in this movie. Uh, uh, Matt Damon, anyway. Sometimes it falls apart a little bit, Michael Douglas's performance, or sometimes it just feels like he's putting something on rather than inhabiting a character. But I am sort of with Damon, especially when he's like the, the surgery scene where he's like where Liberace wants to make him look like his younger self, like Liberace's younger self is going to take his face. And the sort of horror of that, I feel like maybe Soderbergh, he had been doing some genre stuff leading up to this and there had been stuff that had been sort of horror-ish or, you know, you think of, of parts of side effects or other things that if you could draw on that a little more, I wonder if, if that might have made that play better. It all just kind of sits there for me. Like each scene is its interesting own unique thing, but it doesn't add up to very much, I don't think. I get a heavy sense that this is sort of like a Michael Douglas passion project to a degree. I mean, I feel like it came 10 years too late. I mean, he seems a little old. Maybe it's good that it's toward the end of Liberace's life, perhaps. But like, I feel like he's doing a great Liberace. And that's kind of the only thing the movie really has going for it is like the strength of his performance for me and just how much he looks like him and embodies him and uh, maybe it's too much of a mimic at times you know he gets into a bit of like when you see people doing Elvis impersonations he's doing maybe a, a Liberace impersonation but for me that was what was like keeping me along like I enjoyed his performance as Liberace and that's why I was almost originally expecting just a biopic. I didn't know we were going to get like this Matt Damon entry point character story, um, you know, being swept up into the whole scene and everything. And I think that also is a thing. There's kind of only like one major theme to a degree here or one or two, whereas like Soderbergh usually plays with like a lot of, lot of themes that culminate and make like a revelation or something at the end. And here it's like, it is that American dream, but it's like, only that and it's maxed out like you know you said Joey just the opulence the extreme end right like more than anyone ever needs right and then what does that do to a person and their character right and and their morality and and what they do to people and you know he just Liberace ends up you know, treating people like things, you know, he's just another thing to Lee. So, I mean, that's really all we're getting at here. And maybe it's not enough. I think the confusing thing about all of this is that I don't know if the movie knows who the main character is. Like, it's a uh, movie about Liberace, but it's not really, right? Like, it's more a movie about Matt Damon. But like, it's the Liberace movie. And so it's weird. Like, I think there's like this shift in focus. Like, I think it's always Matt Damon at the center of it. But like, what's weird about that is that Scott Thorson, the guy he's playing, has this like crazy track record after the time that we see. Like, do you guys know about Scott Thorson? No, no. So right now, so at the, at the end of the movie, it says he's living in Reno. He's in prison for the rest of his life. He has been in and out of jail on like burglary and robbery charges and like breaking and entering. He went to jail for four years for possession of drugs. What? He got out. Police were tracking down like a lost wallet and they tracked it to this hotel room in Vegas and Scott Thorson was there and he had been using this guy's cards. The other thing I forgot, he was in witness protection for a few what years. What the hell? He was, like, he was involved in like the mafia or something. I'm like, where's this movie? <laughs> the wiki is crazy. And then, so, you know, he gets busted for using these like stolen credit cards or whatever and the judge is lenient on him and gives him probation like five years probation and then he just keeps failing drug tests and keeps getting into trouble and then he developed cancer and 
because he violated probation so many times, he's now in prison for an 8 to 20 year sentence, but because of the cancer that he has, like it's basically like a death sentence. So the fact that we don't see any of this about Scott Thorson, who's arguably, based on this, I mean, he's not as famous as Liberace, but more interesting, maybe, because like this is a crazy story. It's like OJ without the publicity, sort of. Like, <laughs> the fact that like they're just like, oh yeah, and he's living in Reno. Like, no, that's not that's not what happened. Yeah, he's living in Reno, but he's in a correctional facility for the rest of his life. That's wild. Shocking. You do get a little OJ in this movie. You know, you do get a little, you know, opulence. And I think one of the things this movie does well is show the sort of orbit of the star and all the people who sort of who, who sort of attach themselves the, to the, the Dan star. Aykroyd's in yeah. their lives, <laughs> which is great. I love Dan Aykroyd in this movie. I think he's great, and I and all those those sorts of people who are who are sort of always with in this case Liberace and then the the people who sort of come and go in the orbit and there is something you know echoes of the OJ stuff in that but boy I I should put it this way the OJ thing is the first time I remember being aware of that kind of thing of a bunch of of an entourage and a bunch of hangers on and and like house Mm -hmm. Kato Kato Kalin and all that stuff right like a window into that kind of world and so yeah I wonder if I think maybe in my mind Mike really hit on something the idea that there's only kind of one theme and that usually he has something either has more things going on or there's something kind of interesting he has an interesting take on that theme and I just don't know if there is if there I thought maybe when I was watching it that, that part of my problem was that I kind of get pretty tired of drug subplots like somebody gets yep. addicted and they sort of spiral out of control and then are they going to yep. come out of it or not and I just find that a little tedious it just feels like we've seen it a lot and he shoots it in some really cool ways there's one one scene where he's talking to somebody off camera and it just stays real, real close on his face and is kind of coming in and out of focus or there's weird focus stuff going on. He's manic. And I think Matt Damon plays drunk and high really, really well. But I don't know that there's any real point to it. Two thirds way through this movie, I was like sort of half paying attention because like it looks nice, but there's nothing like it almost feels like he has, there's nothing creative going on. Then by the end, when Matt Damon's life is really falling apart, that's where like sort of the camera work gets a little tricky. And like there's the point where Michael O'Malley is coming and like basically chase him out of the house. And there's this scene where like it zoomed down the hallway and we see the guys coming out and we sort of like zoom out and like the camera shakes kind of as Matt Damon like does a line of coke. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like we're in, like literally kind of in his head now. But like. That wasn't enough to keep me invested. It's cool camera work, and it's like, you're right, Matt Damon is playing it well, but it's a thing that we've seen before. And also, on a bigger scale, the biopic is one of my least favorite genres across the board. I think it's very difficult to do a career-spanning movie well. I think that when you focus on like a single event, the example that I always mention is like Selma. When right. you have like the single thing of that, that it's basically a Martin Luther King movie, but like it's that event. And like because you have such a compressed window, you're able to cover it effectively. Here, we do like a decade and two hours and there's just too much. And it's like we get the greatest hits, but there's no substance to any of it. Well, I almost wonder if, if there's just not enough, too. There's too much of one thing. There's too much of, like, not enough, maybe, is what I'm saying. He's trying to make points through the costume design and the set design and the lifestyle, the Vegas thing, but that runs thin pretty quickly, especially at this point where we've been in Vegas for a few films with, with Soderbergh. So we need to get deeper into character. And I don't really ever connect with the two of them on, on a deep level. Like, I just feel like... Like for me as a viewer, everything is just so shallow and I can't connect with them like that. And I'm just watching for performance and for the look of it. I'm just still baffled why it didn't go full Goodfellas when it 
is by design like very similar in structure to something like that movie has all the elements and this guy is more of a henry hill character in real life than he's portrayed as and like i also am now having a hard time getting a handle on the way the movie is making me feel about scott at the end by excluding all this information about him it just doesn't seem responsible to a degree like is it responsible filmmaking i'm not, I'm not sure but it's definitely ruining my enjoyment of what i like you know, one of the things that this whole series has been really good about is giving us a chance to take a look at some of these movies and how, where they fit in the arc of Soderbergh's career. And I feel like he's getting tired. He makes this in side effects in the same year. And I didn't like side effects as much as you guys did. I like it better than this movie. But I think that it's I, I think I can I can feel him getting tired and I can see why he would want to take a break or in his mind retire like he's going to go do going to go paint or whatever he was going to do. I was so tired watching it. I didn't want to go back to it the first time I saw it. And I could just feel that coming off of him. Now, he's still really good at, at there's all kinds of great staging in this movie. And as I say, the, there's a scene where Lee and the Matt Damon character go to this adult store. And that's one of the places where Matt Damon is out of his mind, drunk and high. And he just wanders through this store looking for Lee, and he looks—he looks so drunk to me. Like I can—I can feel it. There are things that both, the, in terms of the performances and the camera work or the, the filmmaking, that do feel like he's engaged in it. I don't know. He just feels a little tired to me. But I really wonder if how much of that is him actively involved in this movie, because I can totally see where you're coming from, or just how much of it is having two actors who are a really good at what they do and also be really familiar with you as a director and just sort of giving them the freedom to be like get into this you know what i mean like i think that it's the environment as a whole but i don't know i mean you never know but i, I just feel like i don't know who to give the credit to also one other little quick return character we have eddie jameson back from a couple different movies but we have like an oceans 2 reunion early on in the movie him yeah. and matt damon so i like that we've seen over and over actors come back to work with him again and again they're obviously comfortable working with him if what one of you guys said was true like if this is like a michael douglas passion project like you know obviously he's into it but like there's the good sequences but other than that it's just why does this exist i think i feel what tobin's talking about with soderbergh maybe being a little tired and not like tired of the material or anything per se but maybe just tired of filmmaking and like not you know being restricted by the medium and just needing you know not being able to break through in ways anymore like he was doing with schizopolis or experimenting Thing with digital and like girlfriend experience type stuff because it's worth it's worth noting that the next thing he does is a tv series like he expands to something bigger yeah he goes to a much broader palette where he has way more time to tell story that could be part of it like i also feel you know for anybody else like we're just we're hard on him because you know <laughs> we're looking at his entire body of work here but i feel like you know if anyone else directed this movie we'd be like wow they, they fucking killed it you know <laughs> like they knocked it out of the park and unfortunately for soderbergh it's it's just like, it's good, you know, because we've seen him do amazing, you know, <laughs> like out of sight. And then like even later stuff with like, hey, the stuff he's doing in Haywire, you know, even at that point, finding like new things to do. Maybe that could be part of it where it's just compared to his other films, it sort of seems like an easier type of movie than what he usually does. So you know, maybe he can just, I don't want to say phone it in, but like, I don't know what other term to really use perhaps, but like, not that it's bad, but like you're saying, like, he's just, it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere farther or deeper than he could be going. 
Yeah, I think you're totally right. He just feels a little burned out to me. And he's had this, you know, time and again, or a few times before, he's had to recharge his batteries, right? If he's not presenting himself with a challenge or a challenge is not presented to him, then he gets tired and, and he gets a little burned out. And I think this is the, we'll, we'll talk about it next week when we get to the Nick, but my understanding was he, he really was intending to retire. And then someone sent him the script for this show. And he's like, okay, I'll read one script. And he reads the pilot for the Nick and is like, okay, I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Something clicked, as you say, in terms of, of a longer stories and do the kind of period thing. And there's something about that I think we will find, not to get ahead of ourselves, sort of rejuvenates him. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that, that may be what's going on here. I spent a lot of the movie trying to figure out why he did this. He didn't write this, which is usually a good sign, right, Tobin? Yeah. When he doesn't write his scripts, usually better. This is a great writer. Richard Legravenous wrote one of my all-time favorite scripts, The Fisher King, um, and, Whoa, and, is, oh, okay. and has written on a bunch of other things. I mean, he's always brought in to rewrite stuff, whether he's sort of his name's in the credits or not. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer. And I, I do fault the script for some of this. There's times when Liberace is sort of, it feels like he's just telling us stuff that was discovered in research, as opposed to telling people things that they need to know in the scene. Not always, but just sometimes. So yeah, it is written by somebody else and somebody else who's really talented and who's who's been friends with Soderbergh for for a while. But yeah, for whatever reason, it didn't click. I was trying to figure out why he did this. I was like, it seems so unlike things he did. Then I like was like looking through the list of movies he's made. And I realized that like in terms of biographies, like Che is a biopic, sort of Aaron Brockovich is, The Informant kind of is, Kafka is. And this sort of falls in line with that. But it's worse than all those. And then I was like, well, there's also like, like, has he done like a period piece? And I was like, oh, wait, but he has done like Kafka and the good German. And like, I feel like he struggles, at least in terms of my opinion, I mean, in, in my eyes, the kind of movies that I want to see. Like, I feel like when he goes to a time in the past, things don't work well for him. Like, I don't think he's able to sort of capture whether it's the good German or whether it's this, like that real feeling. Like, this doesn't feel to me like the 70s or the 80s, I don't think. It's so funny because in the Limey, he does. Like, he, he captures an essence of a previous era in the modern era in kind of a beautiful way. But you're right. Right. You're right. There are other times it doesn't work at all. Yeah. So, like, this kind of combines two different things. It's like the, the biopic, which he has done well, which I think that there's really good examples of, or not not necessarily a biopic, but like a, a focus on, like, a real person, right? And then there's that period thing, which, to me, doesn't click for him. Yeah, and I think, you know, even though you and I liked it, Joey, uh, we, one could say he didn't have quite a grasp of the future either with Solaris, you know, there, that kind of struggled also with Clooney in space feeling, for me at least, quite out of place. I hear what you're saying. For me, I don't know, man. I think with the material and Soderbergh coming on board, like, it feels too safe, especially regarding a lot of this subject matter with the sexuality and all this stuff. It just feels like, especially with HBO, I was expecting it, not that I wanted it to be racier. dirtier, raunchier, or racier, yeah, but I was definitely expecting it to go harder. And I think that for me was like another thing where it's just kind of soft. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting point. This is the first time in my memory that I've seen Soderbergh shoot intimate scenes, sex scenes, or post-sex scenes between characters that has not felt 
really original. That's something I brought up time and again on this show is that he has such a usually has such a way of capturing those sort of moments of romantic or sexual intimacy that I don't think he's sort of going for it here. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a joke, right? Like uh, to me, it does it doesn't feel like like it's a, a homophobic joke that it's look at these two guys and they're having sex. It's just he doesn't. I don't know, he hasn't crawled inside the skin of it at all or something. I'm not sure. He, he usually just finds such such unusual ways to do it. And here everything's presented kind of as you might expect in a TV movie about Liberace. And there's like room and there's space for it. Like you see, I mean, really, really quickly, but you see Scott grow from being worried about having to share a bed with this guy to essentially married to him in like 15 or 20 minutes, like in the in the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's like this rapid thing, but like there's there's time in there for there to be romance. Like there's there's that one scene where at the end of it, the other boy in the house or whatever brings the strawberries and stuff and everything. And like there's like, that's the time to do that. And like, there's just nothing creative. And then like we, we like rush by it. And then like the next time we see them talking about sex, it's like, well, why don't you let me fuck you or what? Like it's just like, well, it's just like everything is just, we need to get to where the thing's go bad because that's where the conflict is and i think that's a problem of the biopic but i think it's also things don't seem fleshed out or like laid out in a sensical way in the in the script it's funny that what she says like the movie feels like it needs to get to like you said show things when stuff is bad and it's weird i don't know if it earned the breakup for me in a way because we didn't really i didn't really see enough of the sort of happy honeymoon period, maybe. I think we skipped too much of that, or like we've been saying, like they just didn't push it far enough. It just didn't get intimate enough. Regarding the script, too, like there's a lot of talking with Liberace telling him about his exploits, but we never see really any of that. It would have been nice to maybe get a few flashbacks or something to flesh that out. But but it all just, again, just makes it less entertaining in a way because I feel like we skipped a lot of fun stuff and the last like 40 minutes, like more than the third act, is going to just be like yelling at each other or like avoiding each other or just like hard times. And I think that would have played better if it was just you know, the last like 15, 20 minutes as opposed to like the last like 40, 50 minutes. Yeah, it feels a little bit on autopilot. Like these scenes are coming at the place that you might expect they would. Joey, I like what you said about the best biopics often being just a slice of a, of a character's life. Like Selmore, I think of um, recently, I think of Lincoln the same way, which is ostensibly a movie about Lincoln, but it's really just about the passage of the 13th Amendment. And sort of you get a window into this character through that. But in both those cases, those people are the main character. And so you really are getting an inside view into them. And in this case, you know, it's it's a short time period. I mean, you're not seeing Liberace's sort of rise and fall. You're seeing Scott's rise and fall, or at least part of his fall. <laughs> Barely falls off a cliff afterwards. But it does it does seem like then you're only seeing Liberace from the outside, which is how you know, you're seeing sort of you're not really seeing behind the candelabra. You're seeing next to the candelabra. Like you just have a closer view of it, not necessarily an, an interior view. And what's also kind of weird, because this is Scott's movie, is that in real life, Liberace was like 40 years older than Scott. And when he first met Scott, Scott was a teenager. And so Matt Damon in this movie, I think, is 42. And he's got that sweet, sweet wig on to make him look younger. But like, <laughs> you don't really get the, the discrepancy. Like, I, I know that they want to cast a recognizable actor because they want to basically sell the movie. It was an HBO movie here because every major Hollywood studio said it was too gay, quote, too gay to be a success, even though it screamed. It was like it was up for the Palme d'Or at Cannes and like it was in theaters 
basically in every country except for America. It was in theaters. I mean, this is after Brokeback, too. Like, there's this whole quote by Soderbergh. After Milk, right? Like, yeah. Harvey Milk was... And so that yeah. that's all weird. I know that you want to have Matt Damon so that people can be like, oh, there's Michael Douglas and there's Matt Damon. Like, I'm going to go see this movie. And we also have Rob Lowe for a couple scenes. But, like, if you want to tell the story of Liberace or Scott, like, whatever you want to do, like, why not cast someone younger who can actually kind of sort of pass for 17, 18? Yeah, Justin Timberlake would have been great. Like, to hear that he was up for this part, he could have definitely played younger. I mean, you definitely get the sense that Lee preys on boys much later in the movie when you see, you know, the kid that's coming later, you know, Mustache Man, I called him. In my and he, notes even, he even admits to us as much, sort of, in that autobiography that he writes that uh, Scott is reading at the end. I mean, he's talking about women, but he's like, you know, right. younger girls posed more of a challenge for me. And it's just like, just, you know, swap the genders. But yeah, like he conquered Scott. You know, it was this guy who did one nice thing for his dog and he just sort of made him his toy and his pet. And then he got a couple years older. And I, I like that. I wish there was more time with Scott's gay friend, that guy that picks him up at the bar at the beginning. Like the oh, guy's Scott like, Pacula. You know, yeah, because he's like, you know, in gay years or whatever, like, you're yeah. Judy Garland or, you know, like, you're done. Like, I wish there was more of him because he feels like this grounded character. He's the foot in the real world that we have. Like, him and, you know, Matt Damon's adopted parents, they're the actual people. Right, like, right. we don't spend enough, like, we're just in Never Neverland for the whole movie. And, like, it's hard to feel grounded at all. It almost makes sense that, like, Matt Damon was a 42-year-old playing a 17-year-old because, like, none of this is real. Yeah, and you know, there's a darker movie in here that this movie hints at sometimes, which I thought of when you were talking, some, something that you were saying, where this is a movie as much about Liberace's stuff as it is anything else. And Matt Damon becomes, Scott Thorson becomes part of his stuff. It becomes part of his yep. collection. And yep. he's going to add him to the, the sort of Baroque, you know, lifestyle he has as one more toy, one more thing in the, in the not museum, but like the, among his possessions. But the movie also wants to be kind of fun. And I don't know that you can, I don't know that it gets that balance quite right, that you can see Matt Damon's fun at the, at the sparkle of this world at the beginning. But maybe what it does is it leans into the drug stuff rather than like the sort of sinister nature of what Lee is wanting him to do to his body and his face and everything. And I think there's a, there probably would be a way to sort of make that version of this movie that might be that might get at something interesting about the material that isn't just sort of what we expect coming in. Yeah, because you know what I really enjoyed, but started feeling out of place more and more, I guess because of reasons you're saying, because it couldn't really balance the darkness, is the music. Like, I love the Liberace piano stuff, like all that kind of thing, but it almost starts to feel like shoehorned in when it's used, you know, almost to say, oh yeah, we have to remind people that Liberace like played piano and was amazing at it and, you know, could do it, you know, twice as fast with one hand but tied behind his back while wearing these giant Elton John costumes. 60 pound costumes for the record. Six, these things weighed up to 60 pounds. Wow. So. He told that one story about how they poisoned him, right? And, like, gave him kidney failure because of the toxins they used to, like, dry clean him and shit. Like, there's a lot of interesting stage stuff that they just completely skip over that I was really expecting, you know, kind of like Birdman stuff going on backstage, you know, that just really isn't really here. Like, we get backstage a little bit, but I was really expecting to spend time there, especially, like, coming to find out that Scott was part of the show. That was crazy to me that Liberace just like put him on stage without any experience or anything. 
what's frustrating about all that is that like you're right like you don't get a sense of any of that and it was only in reading the imdb trivia that you find out that they basically had access to like there's like the liberace museum i think in vegas somewhere maybe and like they had access to all of this stuff and like they recreated so much of his wardrobe and like when you see in michael douglas like you see in the character's closet like those are actually liberace's clothes that are like too valuable and too expensive to be used as actual costumes on set they had access to all this different stuff you know they recreated all of the portraits of Liberace to make it look a little bit more like Michael Douglas. They had access to all the stuff and like they just don't use it. They had the sparkly white cloak. The movie version had, I think, unless I'm misremembering it, something like a hundred thousand dollars in diamonds on there. Like you see it, but like they don't pay attention to it. Like it just why is that not at the heart of this? Like you're right, Mike, like why do we not see them performing together? And like maybe it's a cliche, but you know, they, they sort of get into a fight on stage or why don't we see any of that? Yeah, it's just there's like a kind of like a lack of tension that when the shit hits the fan it's blindsiding me, I guess. You know, like there's all that potential to build it up so that when the rubber band snaps like you could actually like feel it I think one of the things that maybe Soderbergh thought he could do is create this environment and then just let the performances happen within it. It is a movie that does seem to rely more on performance than other sort of either structural or interscene editing or camera techniques that he's used in in other movies that seems less you know, it's 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 trying to be clever through the performances, not necessarily through the filmmaking for, for a lot of it. And I wonder if our perception of, you know, who Liberace was like, I, I, I knew Liberace, like I knew that name. I, and but I didn't I'm not I didn't come in a fan, you know, like my mom came into this movie, like growing up watching Liberace on TV, like she knew Liberace. And I remember her telling me the story where there's a joke early in the movie when Matt Damon and Scott Bakula go to the for the first time he's seeing his show and all the people in the audience are laughing and matt damon says like they don't know he's gay oh they have no idea he's that's gay. It, no because yeah, matt damon says i can't believe a crowd like this would like something so gay and they said oh they have no idea he's gay right so my mom was, was like i i like i i knew him i loved and i had no idea he was gay there really was a sort of blindness. So I think if that is your mindset, if that is if that is your history with Liberace, then seeing the next to the candelabra version of him might be really interesting. Not in terms of like, oh, this is just a great movie, but just in kind of a fascinating look at this person that you spent a long time thinking that you knew and then realizing that you didn't know. And then sort of at that point, he had passed away. And so it may be, it, part of it may be that we are the wrong demographic for this movie too yeah I, I could buy that definitely i only knew of liberace from two things like i remember edward r Murrow interviewed him in good night and good luck because he had to right in order to talk about the mccarthy stuff uh and then um he was in batman he was a batman villain in the batman 66 series oh like, that's what you sent okay yeah, yeah, yeah i sent you guys a link for that he played like candelabra or something it was like his villain name or something close to that so i'm not a fan necessarily i i knew him as like a reference you know what i'm saying but i was also i like to discover through films i do kind of i do like biopics i guess more than joey because like i could discover you know these historical characters that i never knew and 
maybe maybe I was going to like Liberace after this movie and discover things about you know but I just didn't I'm just kind of not interested it's just not kind of interesting I don't really kind of find him too interesting he just seems very sort of surface level to me I feel like my problem with biopics or biopics I, don't, I keep saying it different ways in this episode but I feel like my problem with those <laughs> and it's true here is that like you don't really know more about him at the end than you do at the beginning yeah. right right, right. Yeah, that's my problem with this you know one. he's a Vegas performer you now know that he died of AIDS, right? And that he wore a hairpiece, but like that's not going to make you more or less interested in him. You watch Get On Up and Chadwick Boseman, right, was James Brown, and he's so good in that. But like you walk away like, oh, he was an asshole. Like that's all you that's, that's all you learn from that movie. <laughs> like you're not going you don't learn more about James Brown. You just learn, oh, he was a terrible person. The same thing with like Walk the Line. You're like, oh, he was also an asshole. Like it's just like <laughs> if you're watching a biopic about someone you think you might be interested in. I think that's sort of the bad way to do it. I think if you just like, oh, hey, it's a Michael Douglas movie, and you're like, wait, who's this guy? And like, if, you, if you're introduced to Liberace from this, maybe then you would go and like sort of learn about him. But I feel like if, the, if you're watching something like this to be like, oh, let me get deeper into this guy, like it's just, it, it's not what it's there for. Yeah, I don't know. My mom liked it. So I, I feel like that's why I feel like maybe it is. I, I think your thing about, oh, they were an asshole in terms of those movies is part of that is I think part of it, you're right. I also think part of it is your anti-biopic uh, bias coming through. Oh, 100%. There are people I, I would want to see biopics of and then discover they were assholes and find out how they were assholes. And that could be enough for me uh, if, if I came in with prior knowledge. But those kind of biopics do require you to come in with something about like knowing something about the about the person. Yeah, I guess um, documentaries are better than for for historical figures or something. But I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't necessarily say like I come away thinking they're assholes per se. Just more or less realizing they're human, like everybody else. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, there's tons of assholes that aren't famous, and they just happen to be, <laughs> you know, celebrities versions that can, you know, either write amazing music or write amazing books or perform amazing songs or whatever. So. I don't see if there's any other interesting trivia I have about this. One thing that's kind of cool, I guess, you know, this might also play into the fact that Soderbergh was just tired and wanted to be done with this, or just, you know, a testament to how he does things. But Matt Damon said that they finished filming, like, on a Friday, and by Monday they had a first cut of the movie. That he yeah. just oh, yeah. put this oh. together basically over the weekend. Yeah, so, he did the same thing with Lucky Logan, he said. He actually had a cut that night. He finished shooting and then plugged the last scene in. This is the point at which he's sort of editing as he goes, yeah. You know, not nearly as, you know, prestigious a filmmaker, but one I, I like also works at you know the speed of light in this way is kevin smith i listen to his making of stuff when he's doing movies his podcasts and stuff and it's like yeah during the rap party like they're watching a cut of the film basically because yeah you just now that everything's digital he just goes right from the set to the edit bay plugs all the scenes in and just trims it down you know day after day and it's just like boom you know your first cut is like ready so it's awesome it's crazy Oh, so Rob Lowe, who is the plastic surgeon in this movie, said that basically they did to him, to his character, what Joan Crawford did just for her entire career, sort of to simulate the the facelift without having actually have, having a facelift. He says, you tape, you pull around the back of the head, but you have to wear a wig because it covers the elastic. We did that, and I'm also wearing a dental piece, and then I'm doing a couple things, a couple of tricks on my own face, the way I'm holding it, and then he was just like caked in makeup. Because his face just looks smooth, because it looks like it just literally, it is 
literally being like pulled to the back of his head. So he's literally a character in this movie. <laughs> One note on like the facelift stuff, I was getting sort of, uh, because I've seen episode one of The Nick back when it aired, and I would not be watching it or giving it another chance if we weren't doing this, you guys. So like, Oh, really? Uh, I, well, I got queasy, oh, and yeah. I got queasy during this movie, and it made me think about the eye thing that we watched way back when, too. It feels like a precursor to the Nick. Yes. Like maybe he got a little fascinated here with surgery. Yes. And that is where he came away from in this movie. He's like, ooh, I want to explore that. That's gross and interesting and scientific and all that. So I had that same thought. And when I watched this, I thought, oh, here it is. Like this is the start of what he gets up to in the Nick. And I think I wrote to you guys when I very first started the Nick, like, oh my God, I can't eat, I can't eat while I'm watching this show. And I have to say, because I, I, I'm fair, fairly squeamish with that kind of thing. I have to say for our listeners out there who are wondering if they should dive into the Nick to join us, that stuff does get easier, I think, as the show goes along. Whether I'm becoming inured to it or they just sort of aren't focusing on it as much or I just learn when to sort of cover my eyes. Like it just works. That, that stuff gets easier. And and what's funny, too, is that God, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but I just have to say, after uh, Joey's comments about uh, Soderbergh and his, uh, you know, sort of the, the trouble with period piece is that that's exactly what he's going to set himself as a challenge in this next project is to go like full period. And it'll be interesting to see how he pulls that off. Yeah, I have seen none of The Nick, and we're going to do season one next week and season two the week after, so we're going to sort of make it a little bit more digestible without sort of spreading it out too far, so that's going to be fun. It was a show that I always wanted to watch, especially when it was on. I was a big fan of Clive Owen. I don't know why I didn't watch it, but I just I never saw it. Very excited to see that, and then I'm also going to check out The Girlfriend Experience, which he produced but did not direct, so like I'm, I'm excited to enter this TV phase of his career when movies seem to be something that he's not really as interested or passionate about maybe i mean who knows like i don't i feel weird putting thoughts into his mind like he might have been really into this and like it just didn't work out i don't know but like yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm excited to see something different and then for the return to filmmaking with logan lucky which uh, i really really dig so i did not like this but it's sort of the last little bit of medicine to swallow before hopefully tv shows that i really really like so it is interesting that we've spent more time talking about other movies, other biopics, and The Nick on this podcast. I think that says something about this movie. Probably. Mike, do you have anything else to say about Behind the Candelabra? I just had two small notes I wanted to get to. One is something that Tobin was pointing out along the way that I kept forgetting to pick up on, but I did this time. You know, just like he mentioned it when it would come up, because I'm doing the editing and I'm like listening in on old episodes now, but Soderbergh's sort of like interest in twins is apparent in this in this movie. Liberace was a twin. His brother died at birth, and it kind of seems like he was remaking Scott in his own image, and it was sort of like this weird clone. So like I almost feel like in a rewrite with maybe you know more intent behind it you could have gotten deeper into that psychological aspect of Liberace's obsessions and also his mother is played by Debbie Reynolds yes and she's only 12 years older than Michael Douglas oh that was Debbie Reynolds oh my gosh oh wow I did not recognize her so yeah, well, she's under a bunch of makeup yeah. and an accent. She's great. She's great. Yeah, she's really. She's got one like really heavy scene at the um, slot machine yeah. at his house. I thought was great. Oh, that's great. Oh my god, I like that even more now. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Tobin, any last thoughts about behind the candelabra? Nope. I'm excited to move on. 
cool. Well, for all things Cinemakers and all the other movies that we talked about on this episode, this is episode 28, so we have 27 other Soderbergh things we've talked about already with a few more to come. You can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can find all of our shows. You can find all the other shows on the network. By now, both Tobin and Mike's podcast have started, so you can go listen to those. You can go find out wherever we are with Too Fast, Too Forever, Boyfriend Material, and Magic Mike's. All sorts of fun things to listen to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter. Oh, and email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. One of these weeks, I know it, we're going to get one email. I know you're (laughs) out there. Send that email, cinemakers at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Eddington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.